Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1. Uh, told you last week I'll give you a little extra time uh, in this season to you know, find it if you're using a physical Bible. Um, H-A-B-A-K-K-U-K, for those of you who are trying to type it quickly into the search feature of your Bible app. Um, Habakkuk chapter 1. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, whether you're in the room or you're watching us from home, watching us online right now, if you have a Bible, grab it real quick. Uh, if you don't, that's okay. Uh, we will put our text for the morning up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, if you're watching from home, we'll also put it up on your screen in, the, in a moment when we come to that point. Um, but we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal His Himself to His people. We want you to know God here. That's what we're about. That's what drives us in everything that we do. And so um, that's why we're always kind of pushing people around here to, to get their noses in their Bibles. We believe that God will actually use that in a massive way. And so if you don't have a Bible of your very own, we can actually fix that pretty quick around here. we got a big old stack of them. We'd love to give them away around here. And so if you don't have a Bible, contact me after we're done, and uh, we will uh, do something about that in a hurry. Um, so Last week, last week we kicked off a brand new series that we're focusing on for this summer. We're taking a slow walk through the book of Habakkuk, all right? And we spent the majority of our time last week setting the backstory, right? Uh, we went through a long history lesson. Uh, we believe that, that the context that Habakkuk was writing his letter in is important. We believe that it was uh, shortly before, or we could say only a handful of years before, what we call uh, the Babylonian assault on Judah, and I'm sure you're so excited to learn about that. Um, we, we think that that happened starting around 597 BC, uh, so if you've got a mental timeline, uh, there you go. You can kind of slot that in to wherever you want to place it. Um, so we believe that, that, that that's when all of this was happening in front of Habakkuk, and they, that, he, um, that it was just playing out for him around that time period. Uh, he had watched his people, the Jews, uh, get swept up in a nationwide revival of under the reign of King Josiah. All right? And we went through the story last week. We don't have to go through it again. But every domain of society saw reform. Every corner of the culture began pursuing righteousness before the Lord, righteousness before God. And it's, it's not only a thing that's right to celebrate, good and right to celebrate. It's the kind of thing that we beg God to bring about here. Like, if, if you're one of God's people, don't you kind of long to see that in your own community? Whether it's Nashua or one of the towns around Nashua, or maybe you're watching us online a long way away. Whatever it is, if you're one of God's people, you'd long desperately for God to bring about that kind of revival exactly where you are. You want to see it, and Habakkuk saw it. He got to witness all of it. He got to celebrate it. But revivals, man, they don't last forever. They don't or at least not earthly ones. King Josiah dies in a battle that honestly he probably shouldn't have been in. It would have been smarter to stay away in that moment. But he dies in battle and the kingdom is handed off to his sons and they immediately begin to systematically undo everything that had brought about those reforms. They bring back the, the altars and the the monuments to the false gods, they shudder the temple again. The revival is over. It's, it's over. Now, we, we can and should have the discussion at, at another time uh, that, that if a government changing policy can stop a revival, then maybe it wasn't a true revival. Like, like, we should have that conversation. That's an appropriate conversation to have. But that's a conversation for those who are privileged with hindsight. 
And Habakkuk doesn't have that. He's living in the middle of this stuff. Right? And so he watched all of those good things shatter into a million pieces. And so last week, we looked specifically at Habakkuk's response to all of that nonsense, right? We, we touched on only the first four verses of the letter, the first four verses of chapter one. But Habakkuk makes every word of those four verses count. He cries out to God in lament. He is broken and in pain. And so he cries out to God, what are you doing? Where are you? Why won't you step in to stop all of this? How could you allow this to happen? Why aren't you moving here? And, and those are questions that, that I believe, I, I truly believe every single follower of Jesus has had at some point in their life or another. Where are you? Why, why won't you do something about this? Habakkuk cries out to God in his pain. He laments over the sin going on around him and the effects of sin going on around him. And he's beginning to wonder out loud if God is capable of fixing any of it. I've had those questions. I've, I think you probably have too. And while we may live in a larger church culture that thinks that, that those kind of questions are out of bounds or unfair or, or not allowed, that those kind of questions are off limits for mature followers of Jesus, we're supposed to have everything put together, right? We're supposed to have everything figured out and, and locked down. And so uh, while we have a larger church culture that thinks that those kinds of questions are off limit, Habakkuk is far, far from the only person in the Bible to find himself in exactly that place. And so we said last week that, that lament is good and right for God's people because it's exactly where it shows who we run to when our world is falling apart. Lament is this, is this core-level, knee-jerk reaction that proves where our trust is when everything else fails. That a stiff upper lip and a bootstrap will be okay and figure it out kind of attitude is actually an anti-gospel posture. It's the opposite. It, it may very well be the, the air we breathe in, you know, in, in American Christendom, but it looks a lot more like Genesis 3 than anything you'll find in the New Testament. I can do it myself. I'll go get joy on my own. I, I'll fix this. I got it. Habakkuk is just more honest than a lot of us. He doesn't dress it up in, in a fake religiosity. He cries out to God in his pain, and God is big enough to hear it. Gigantic questions are never too big for a gigantic God. He's okay. You don't have to protect him from your doubt. You don't have to protect him from your pain. You don't have to protect him from your, your struggle to, to deal with the things that he's handing down to you. He's big enough. He's okay. But make no mistake about it, the questions that Habakkuk raised last week are incredibly significant questions. Incredibly significant questions. Namely, is God's law paralyzed? And specifically, is God's law paralyzed today? I mean, we look around, we see the same kinds of violence, we see the same kinds of contention and strife that Habakkuk talked about last week. Does justice go forth perverted, in his own words? And I told you last week that, that Habakkuk is blessed with, with 
and that God is going to answer. And we don't, we don't always get an answer like Habakkuk does, but Habakkuk gets an answer. And so God, God blesses us by blessing Habakkuk here. And so God's answer begins in verse 5. i got to get there myself now that I'm talking about it. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. So it says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. All right, so last summer, uh, last summer we did a short series uh, that we called, I Don't Think That Means What You Think That Means. All right, uh, the title of the series was probably longer than the series itself. All right, uh, but, but we looked at some of the most egregious examples of proof texting in the larger church culture, all right, uh, the larger culture today. Um, so in, if you don't know what proof texting means, uh, proof texting is when you take a verse out of its original context and try to make it mean something else, something for other purposes than what it was originally first written for. All right? And so uh, that usually often ends up being something that's almost completely backwards to the gospel itself. It's just how it always seems to work. All right? And so while there are certainly other guilty parties, what we learned last summer is that the most frequent offenders during that series uh, were those we, we would describe as the prosperity gospel preachers and the TV uh, evangelists. Type, you know the brand, uh, big hair, sharp suits, and never reading more than three verses in a row in their Bibles. Right? And so that's, that's, the, that's the type that we often saw. And so last summer, we looked at this verse that was in our, our I don't think that means what you think that means series. Habakkuk 1.5, we looked at it. Right? It's one of the ones that frequently gets abused. And I'm of the opinion that it happens to be one of the most heinous examples of abuse, horrific examples. Why? Because... Within the prosperity gospel movement, they'll, they'll quote this verse as, as a way to get you all revved up about all the great and unbelievable things that God is going to do in your life, going to do for you. Man, you don't even know. You just get ready. You can't even wrap your head around it. God's going to work so powerfully in you that you're not even going to be able to make sense of it all when he's done. Just get out of the way and watch out. Here he comes. And we said a year ago, and it needs to be said again this week that this is, this is easily one of the most heinous examples of proof texting out there. Why? Because of the very next words of God. Remember how proof texting pulls something out of its original context, separates it from the larger whole? Well, look, God has something to say immediately after that. So you can wonder and be astounded by good things. It's absolutely true. You, you can and should be astounded by good things, but that's not the only stuff you can be astounded by. You can also be astounded by tragedy. You can be left utterly speechless and not knowing which way to turn. And so in verse 6, God says this, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Let's call a time out there. Uh, we'll, we'll read the rest of verse 6 in just a second, but let's call a time out there. So we closed out uh, last week uh, with Habakkuk asking God if he sees what's going on and if he's ever going to do anything about it. And so God has an answer for him. He's going to answer Habakkuk's question, and the answer is, yeah. Yeah, I see it. And I am already doing something about it. See, before Habakkuk has even asked his questions, God knew exactly what was going on, and he was already working towards its solution. Thanks for noticing, Habakkuk. I'm on it. That's what he says. 
Now, does that mean that Habakkuk was wrong to cry out to God? Like, what, what's the use of a lament if it's something that God already knows about, right? He's not providing new information. Well, God certainly uses our prayer to bring about his purposes in this world. We, we believe and teach here that, that he ordains the ends and the means to those ends. He, he uses prayer to bring about his purposes in the world. Uh, prayer, but prayer is also, not in place of, but also about aligning ourselves to lean into the God who is answering that prayer. It's both and. I truly believe that our God delights when we cry out to him and he delights in showing us what he's doing about that pain. He's active and working. So Habakkuk, he, he, he brings his complaint to God and God is not only listening, he's already moving. He's already moving, but how is he moving? He says he's raising up the Chaldeans. Uh, I told you last week that the Chaldeans is another name for the Babylonians. Uh, burgeoning little empire, but they're growing in a hurry, and they're absolutely brutal. Fun guys to know. Um, they're the last people in the story that you would point to and say, yeah, those are the good guys. Just absolutely brutal people. But, but notice what God says here. He, he doesn't say, you know, I, I've been paying some attention to this little, little brand new young empire over here, and I, I think they got some promise. I think that maybe I can use them for some things. And so if I steer the, the, the circumstances just so, I think, maybe, I think that I can use them to bring about my purposes. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see, though. But uh, cross your fingers. I, th- I, think, I think I can actually do something with these guys. That's not what he says at all, is it? What does he say? He says, I'm raising them up. Church family, no matter how much attention you personally give to geopolitics, the Bible is crystal clear that God is sovereign over every single piece of it. Every single piece of it. Empires rise and empires fall for his purposes. This is Romans 13. God places rulers on their throne. This is uh, Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the Lord's hand. Uh, He turns it wherever he wills. It's pretty much the entire point of the book of Daniel. Empires rise and empires fall. Every single empire, every single regime, whether they're a dictator or they were duly elected through a democratic process, whether they're a rogue nation or they're the world's policemen, every empire is raised up and every single empire is torn down for his purposes and for his glory. The Bible beats that drum over and over and over again. And if you're dumb enough to be thinking, yeah, God put my team in charge, so deal with it. Look at what he says about the Babylonians here. He calls them bitter and hasty. Bitter and hasty. Hey, you know how political opponents will often point to the other side of the aisle and call their opponents by the worst possible terms? You ever come across that in our world? I've come across that. In the world. You probably have it. It's so rare. Just so rare. It's unchristlike in every way, but it's rare. They're caricaturized, make them look not just like the bad guy, but just the archetype of the bad guy. But unfair caricature is not what's going on in verse 6. Not even a little bit. God has no party base that he's got to pump up into a frenzy. He's not playing political games here. There's no 
There's no skewing this to make his opponents look like something they're not. He speaks truthfully because he is truth, and even God thinks that the Babylonians are mean. Even, even God's got bad things to say about these. You watch out for those Babylonians, bitter and hasty. So why are they rightly, truthfully described as bitter and hasty? We'll look at the second half of the verse. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, comma, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. So I told you last week that the Babylonians are growing by attacking and enslaving, enslaving all of the smaller nations around them. Right? Uh, they're brutalizing and overthrowing everybody else. Uh, they'll march in, they'll wipe them out, and they'll march on to the next place. Look at verse 7. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. So, some confusion. All right, so how can they be described as both dreaded and fearsome, but also having justice and dignity? Like, that doesn't make sense. Those two things, aren't, don't, they're not supposed to go together, right? Well, I think the answer is found in the going forth from themselves part. I think that gives us a clue about what God's talking about here. It's a man-made, corrupt justice that chases after the wrong things. They'll call it justice, but it's not a godly justice. It's a skewed, self-declarative justice. It's a self-exalted dignity that finds its identity in that which is please, uh, displeasing to God. It builds up these horrific God, these things that God would denounce and put hatred upon and holds them up as the pinnacle of their culture. In other words, they're not only bitter and hasty, they go ahead and pat themselves on the back for it. That's what's going on here. They're, they're not apologizing for sweeping through and destroying everything. They're not reluctantly playing the role of the bad guys in the story. No, they've justified their actions to the point where they believe that what, what they're doing is morally right, and it's applauded within their culture. The Babylonians wear their brutality on their sleeve as a badge of honor. And if you're asking, how could anyone be both so violent and so self-assured about that violence in the same moment, I'm not sure you're paying attention to the culture you live in. Right? What was once out of bounds ends up being seen as pragmatic. After a little while longer, that pragmatism eventually turns into necessity. And then once it's necessity, it never really takes long before it turns into something that's celebrated and idealized. Every culture, all the time. Maybe those Babylonians aren't the only ones that fairly get the title of bitter and hasty. But you know what? Maybe you're thinking to yourself, but these are God's people on the other side. Like, yeah, the Babylonians, they're cruel, they're mean, they're, they're yeah, yeah but, but like, you got Judah over here, they're God's people, right? Like, like, maybe they've got a shot. God is with them. He is their God. He'll fight for them, right? Don't you remember the days of Joshua and all those kinds of things? Don't you remember when God raised up the judges? Don't you remember how awesome David was and Solomon was to, to, to bring peace to the kingdom by warfare and all those kinds of things? God is with them, right? Surely they've got a shot against this little tiny, even though they're bitter and hasty, surely because God is with them, they've got this locked down. And then verse 8 happens. Their horses are swifter than lepers, leopards. 
more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press on, proudly on. Uh, Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. So um, it, it seems like the Babylonians are pretty good at this whole pillaging and enslaving thing, huh? Like really good at it. You might think that they're just going to have an off day when they finally get to Judah. (laughs) Won't fail to bring their A game. Got lulled into a false sense of security because all the other nations fell so easily. You might think that they're just going to mail that one in. In verse 9, God says that the Chaldeans are coming for violence. Violence. Hey, you remember last week when um, Habakkuk was wondering if God was somehow paralyzed? because of all the violence he saw around him. You think that's about to get better or worse? About to get a lot worse. I think the Babylonians are about to bring a brand new definition to that word. I think Habakkuk is about to get a very serious lesson in what violence actually is. It's going to be a dark day. And while Habakkuk's original questions of where are you and why aren't you stopping this, while while those questions are beginning to be answered, anybody else have some new questions emerging? Right? If you're paying attention, there's probably a warning light beginning to flash in the back of your mind. Questions like, wait, 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 is God allowed to do it this way? Would, would he really, honestly, I mean, come on, would God really use an incredibly sinful people to bring judgment on those that I think, I think we would all assume are, are at least a less sinful people? Yeah, I mean, Judah's got some problems. There's some, there's some terrible things going on, but like, would he really, honestly, truthfully use somebody as terrible as the, as the Babylonians, as the Chaldeans, to bring judgment upon that people? Like, surely the Babylonians are worse. Surely they deserve wrath more than Judah deserves wrath, right? Like, if we're, if we're working on a sliding scale here. Judah has got to be better than the Babylonians. Like, why would God do that? Those are real questions. And just like last week, God is a big boy. He can handle himself. Those questions are not out of bounds. You don't have to protect him from those kinds of questions. But also, just like last week, we're not quite ready to answer them yet. And the reason why is It's because God's not done yet listing out the resume of the tool he's about to use. Look at verse 10. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. So why do the Chaldeans scoff at kings and fortresses? Why why does that seem like nothing to them? Well, it's because the Chaldeans and the Assyrians before them excelled in siege warfare. Right? Nobody could match up with them in the open field. Nobody could match up with them offensively. So their enemies instead figured out that the Babylonians were coming and they would run and hide in their fortified cities. Right? They'd hide behind their giant city walls or, or maybe middle-sized city walls, whatever it was. But they'd hide behind their city walls and hope that they had enough provisions to hold out until the Babylonians just gave up. Right, And so siege warfare is when you surround a city in such a way to cut off all resupply and then you starve out your opponents. 
right? Whether it's food or water or whatever it is they need, you just wait until they run out of whatever they need and they have to come out. The other option is for, the, for you to intimidate them in such a way that they eventually get so scared, know that they're going to lose and just open the door for you hoping for a better deal. Right? That's, what's, that's what's going on here. But there's a third option in siege warfare if you are impatient. The Babylonians had a lot of opportunity to practice, so they got really, really good at it, at piling up the earth, we're told. They built earthen ramps right up next to the walls, and they'd just go over the walls and take the city. Everybody's home for dinner. They didn't have to wait to starve people out. They just got a couple thousand of their slaves that they had taken from all the other towns, made them pile up a bunch of dirt by the wall, and they just go over the wall. Easy peasy. They scoffed at fortresses. They scoffed at the kings who were dumb enough to hide inside of them because those fortresses didn't slow them down. Weren't even an inconvenience. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ooh, you got a wall. Watch what we do with it. Look at verse 11. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on guilty men whose own might is their God. The Babylonians would sweep in and take whatever and whomever they wanted and they would just simply move on to the next town, the next kingdom. And we're told here that, that their own might is their God. They feared no one. They respected no one. God's description of bitter and hasty is an incredibly well-deserved description. Now, I, I think that anyone who sees their own might as their God is soon to be in for a rude awakening. Uh, you, you, just, you just don't get to act like a fool before the true God for very long before he does something about that. And so, the new questions that emerged out of whether God can or should use these people for his purposes, they will eventually be answered. But before we get there, church, before we get there, I think we first need to see that God is neither blind nor is he inactive. He has a response to darkness too. Habakkuk's response was to lament. God's response is to act. He is not silent. He is not paralyzed. He is moving. While, while lament over sin and the effects of sin is good and right, while questions over whether or not God is paying attention are natural for people who are, are honestly looking at the world, the clear and obvious answer to Habakkuk's question is absolutely, yes, I'm here. I'm doing something about this. God is not only aware of the problems that Habakkuk is bringing to us, but he sees them better than Habakkuk does. Way better, infinitely better than Habakkuk does. Habakkuk is right to notice the sin of God's people. It's blatant. You can't ignore it. You cannot miss it. But Habakkuk is one man in one corner of God's kingdom. He's got one vantage point to pay attention to. But God, who is sovereign in the heavens, sees all of the vantage points. Habakkuk finally breaks when the depravity going on around him becomes too much for him to, to stay silent anymore. But God has an infinitely higher frustration with his people's depravity, I promise you. Oh, he sees it, and it bothers him. Habakkuk, he believes that God's not doing anything because he can't see what God is doing yet. He can't point to anything that God is acting upon, but God is working things that Habakkuk has no clue about. No clue. 
Some of those things were in play long before Habakkuk was even born. He's raising up and tearing down empires for his purposes. He is playing the long game here. He is. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, this seems like a waste of time. Like, like, shouldn't God just get it over with already? Just smite everybody in a hurry? We all go home? I mean, it's what they deserve, right? It's what they deserve? I mean, shouldn't he go full Sodom and Gomorrah and just start raining fire down from heaven? Be fun to watch from a distance. We've got a schedule to keep, right? For the glory of your name, God, just get it over with already. That logic only seems like the best plan when the bad guys in the story aren't you. That only seems like a good plan when the bad guys are a nameless, evil people that you have no connection with. To be explicitly clear, the nation of Judah rightly deserved God's wrath. It was owed to them. They were a people operating under his promises, operating under his blessing. They were supposed to represent his holiness and his glory to the nations around them, to all the Gentiles. And instead, they have willingly broken the covenant and are now openly worshiping false gods of their neighbors. The nation of Judah rightly deserves the wrath of God. And so it would be a gigantic, gigantic mistake to somehow miss the extreme graciousness of God in this moment. Do not let this go by without paying close attention to it. The fact that he doesn't just wipe them out in an instant, it's testimony to his goodness. Because he, he slows what is owed to them, he stalls and lets wrath be built up instead of just going after them, it's testimony to his patience, it's testimony to his mercy, it's testimony to his graciousness and goodness. Instead, he gives them generation after generation after generation of time to come to repentance. And can we be honest this morning? It's infinitely more time than any one of us would ever give to our enemy if we found ourselves in the same position. It really is. There's this weird idea floating around out in society that the God of the Old Testament is mean and that the God of the New Testament is gracious and kind. It's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. Have you read the Old Testament? Look what he does with his people. Mess it up after mess it up after mess it up after mess it up. Generation after generation after generation. They never figure it out. And God goes, I'm waiting. Yes, I'm moving. But I'm waiting. I don't have that kind of graciousness in me. I don't know your heart, but I'm just going to go ahead and guess. Neither do you. Generation after generation. Unfortunately, though, unfortunately, though, the nature of our sin ends up proving itself over and over again. See, sin is not merely something that we commit since, since the fall, since Genesis 3. It is, it is a broken reality of who we naturally are. It comes out of us because it's in us. So it doesn't really matter how long God gives them. They can never get out of their own way. 
And generation after generation, Judah will continue to pile up judgment against themselves. The bow of God's wrath is a slow draw. It really is, but the arrow will eventually be loosed. While God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he will eventually bring his righteous judgment to bear upon the sin of his people, and he'll do it through the Babylonians. He is not blind. He is not inactive. His law is not paralyzed, and rest assured, his justice is never perverted. Never. So, so, so what do we do with this? Right? I mean, talk about Habakkuk's story. Is this, is this anything more for us, those who are now living you know, in, in the New Testament age? Is, is this for, what, what do we do with the story? Is this anything more for us than just a nice history, some, some background information, a lesson on God's people, what he did back then? I mean, we don't operate on the same covenants they do. We don't, we don't have the same offers and promises that they did. So what's here for us? Man, I think it's a real clear call to repentance. I, I, think that's, I think that's the thing we need to see. It's a clear call to repentance. What seems to us like a delay in justice. Guys, it's not an indicator of his powerlessness. It's not an indicator of his apathy or his inability to pay attention and keep all the plates spinning. It is an immense and undeserved gift of his grace and his patience towards sinners. If we, like Habakkuk, look out and go, Where, what, what are you doing here? Why aren't you moving here? It's not because he's not moving. It's because he's gracious. Whereas Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I think the clear call is to turn away from our sin and turn to him as Savior and Lord. The difference, though, between us and the nation of Judah all those years ago, the, the difference is that we have the benefit, the luxury of looking backwards on what purchased that grace for us. Jesus' sinless life and his death on the cross in your place accomplished what you and I cannot accomplish on our own. Perfect, infinitely perfect righteousness. Through Jesus' death, he made payment for your sin. He took the wrath that was owed to you and me, and he took it upon himself instead. And through his resurrection, he secured the promise of your own resurrection. And so as the king who conquered sin and death, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and in faith this morning. Whether you're in this room right now, or you're watching us online through a video feed, whatever it is, he would call you to respond to him in repentance and faith. Call on Jesus to save you, and he will save you. He will. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That's a time for you to respond to God's word, to put action to it, to do something with it. You don't need me. Jesus doesn't need some earthly mediator. He came to be the mediator. He wants to give you himself. You don't need me, but that doesn't mean we can't talk. That doesn't mean I don't want to help you. I'll be, you can catch me after we're done. If you're in the room, if you're watching online, give me a call after we're done. Man, I love to talk. 
I'd love to walk you through what this response of faith looks like. If you're already a follower of Jesus, do you think we have a response to this? I think we do. Do not forget, oh, do not forget who God is slowly building this wrath up against. Those who claim to be his people. Whether we're talking about those who are just Christian in name alone, or we're talking about those who actually long to find their identity in him but are just caught up right now in the sin that surrounds them, the culture that surrounds them. No matter, no matter who you are, the call is the same. Repent. Turn away from your sin and turn to your Savior by his grace. The bow of God's wrath is a slow draw, but the arrow will eventually be loosed. Repent. Maybe you need to respond in some other kind of way this morning. Maybe it's to follow Jesus in baptism, or maybe it's to, to join this church family, or, or, or maybe, maybe God is laying upon your heart the call to missions, and you need to say yes to that this morning. We, we have all these different ways that God might be working on you, and so, uh, so however you need to respond, this time is for you. And So I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing. Oh, church, let's all respond to God's word together. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Habakkuk. Thank you for allowing us the opportunity to know that story. Mirrors so much of our own experience. Well, we don't live in the same time period. And we don't have the same covenant promises. And we don't have this and we don't have that. But your people see sin. They see unrighteousness. They call out to you in pain, in lament, and you answer. You are not silent. Your, your arm is not too short. You are not paralyzed. You hear, you see, and you're working long before we're even paying attention. And so as Habakkuk begins to learn to repent himself and lean into your provision, even when everything else may not be going as he hopes. May we do the same. May we lean into the God who sees and is working. God, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known right now? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know? By your grace, would you draw people into your kingdom this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.